Welcome to the Hill City Podcast. This is a recording of the weekly gathering from Hill City Church. We exist to help people follow Jesus and build their lives around three goals. To be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. If you'd like to join us, we meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Caustic Center in Farmington Hills, Michigan. We hope that today's message will help you follow Jesus. Also excited to be starting a new series here this morning called On Earth As It Is in Heaven. And what we are going to be doing over the summer is we are going to be looking at one of Jesus' most well-known sermons that he ever gave that's found in Matthew 5 through 7. And so what we will be doing over the next 10 to 11 weeks together is we're going to be looking over these couple chapters and just seeing what it is that God has for us. And so I'm excited to get that going here this morning. Now, if you're anything like me, uh, one of the things that you do in the spring is, uh, or in the winter and in the spring, is you watch a lot of basketball. Uh, And for me, I'm more of a college basketball uh, viewer than an NBA uh, viewer. But I will say, I did watch a decent amount of NBA basketball because the, the playoff run that the Miami Heat made was pretty intriguing to me. Some of you, you don't have any clue what the heck I'm talking about, and that's okay. Just hang with me for like two more minutes. All right, but here's the thing. It was wild because LeBron, who we all know as King James, got knocked out, and, and uh, when he, they were knocked out on this kind of unlikely run by these different teams, it was wild because the moment he got knocked out, uh, all the... Uh, sports outlets began running the same thing, and they were all asking the same question. You guys know what the question is? Is LeBron James really the GOAT, right? And if you guys don't know what GOAT is, greatest of all time, uh, and they're asking the question, and, and I feel like LeBron can do nothing without being compared to Michael Jordan, right? Where everyone is comparing him to Michael Jordan, everyone's pointing out that, they, that Michael never lost in that way and blah, blah, blah. And so they began the question of who is actually the GOAT. Well, not began. It continued the question of who is the actual GOAT. Now, I don't know. This is not going to be our discussion question, but I have a leaning uh, one way or the other, and it's not LeBron. Uh, so, um, but whatever it is, right? Whatever it is, you can ask all the different questions that you want. You can look at different athletes, right? You can look at people like Simone Biles and ask, is she truly the greatest gymnast, Olympic gymnast that the United States has ever seen. Or you look at uh, Serena Williams and you think, I mean, is there anyone that has been more accomplished in the tennis world than Serena? Or you look at Muhammad Ali and you think he must be one of the greatest boxers, the greatest of all time, right? Uh, You look at Michael Phelps, is he the greatest Olympian? Of all time. I mean, with all the medals that he won, I still remember that Sports Illustrated cover where he just had all of his medals hanging on his chest when he retired. I mean, unbelievable what he was able to accomplish. Maybe sports aren't your thing, and you look more in different worlds or genres of, of the questions of go. Maybe you're asking, uh, who's the greatest author of all time? And full disclosure, I had no idea. Uh, so I Googled it, um, and, and I saw a handful of names on there, Jane Austen, William Shakespeare. They don't really seem like the same genre but whatever, you know, or maybe you move to like the spots of like Beethoven or Mozart, right? You can always go to this question of what, and it always seems to be a debate. Some people are willing to agree. Some people are not willing to agree, right? Here's, here's the reality. When it comes to the greatest sermon that Jesus ever gave, 
it's pretty much hands down indisputable that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon that Jesus ever gave. I mean, people will question different spots throughout the Gospels, but when you look at the fullness of a sermon, this is it. And there's so many reasons why, and we're going to explore them throughout the summer, but one of those reasons is because the Sermon on the Mount is all about what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's all about what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. It's not, this was not just a whole sermon on a bunch of good ideas that Jesus had around certain topics. No, these were descriptions about what life will look like when we get to heaven. And the whole sermon becomes a discourse on discipleship. What does discipleship to Jesus ultimately look like for our lives right here, right now, as we look forward to heaven? And the reason is, and the reason this is so important to understand is because it means that the Sermon on the Mount is not meant for just then. It's meant for us today, right now. We don't have to wait to heaven to begin to live in such a way where we are ushering in this kingdom, but we can begin living this kingdom lifestyle right now in a way that ushers in heaven to the earth around us. Thus the name as on earth as it is in heaven for our series. But instead, if we follow Jesus, then we can live out these principles. We can live out these realities that Jesus talks about throughout the Sermon on the Mount so that, again, people come around us and they get a glimpse and a taste of what heaven will be like. And so the Sermon on the Mount is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to the kingdom. This is why we're so excited about it here at Hill City this summer, because we really believe that God has something special for us as we live out these realities in the communities, in the context that we are a part of. And so when we are stepping into this, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves, this is what the Sermon on the Mount is, we have to ask ourselves, what is the kingdom? I don't know about you or what kind of backgrounds you grew up in, but for me, I never heard anything about the kingdom of heaven. Never once uh, growing up. I never heard about the kingdom of heaven. So when you ask what is the kingdom, I would not have been able to know, answer it before I really started studying it and understanding it uh, as I started following Jesus all those years ago. The kingdom is a big deal for Jesus, though. In fact, it is the primary message that Jesus spoke on throughout his ministry. And so when you read through the Gospels, when you look at them, one of the things that you will primarily see him talking about is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, his very first kind of words that he preached to the crowds is found in Matthew 4, 17. And here's what Jesus says. He says, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven. There it is, has come near. So when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, what he is declaring is that he is the king and that his kingdom has come to earth. That's what he says when he says the kingdom of heaven has come near. So he's ultimately declaring this new way of living, this new place of being has come in his coming to earth. And so the kingdom is a big deal. This is his primary message that the availability, the presence, and the power of the kingdom of heaven, or if you read Paul's writings and the rest of the New Testament, the kingdom of God, two sides of the same coin, all right? They are the central teachings of the New Testament. This is what they're pointing to, this kingdom of heaven. 
And Jesus is giving an invitation to the crowds who are following him. This invitation is that the kingdom of heaven is an interactive life with God. It's not about following all these rules and regulations and stipulations to be able to be deemed worthy one day to step into the kingdom. No, no, no. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven has come near in my coming. And therefore, you have the ability to come and experience and be a part of this kingdom by coming and knowing me and being in relationship with me. The kingdom of heaven is that interactive life with God. And it won't come the way that, they, that everyone thought it was going to come. Everyone had this understanding and mindset of this is how I get right so at the end I'll be able to enter into the kingdom and not enter into the other kingdom, right? And that's why throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what you'll see Jesus say is, you have heard it said, but now I say to you. What he's doing is he's flipping everyone's understanding of this kingdom on its head so that people are actually getting a real glimpse into what heaven begins to look like. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is ultimately saying, change the way that you have been thinking because a life of intimacy and interaction with God is now in your midst. A life of knowing Jesus is now among you. Knowing the living God is with you. And people were excited about this. People were eager about this invitation that Jesus was giving to, to, to the crowds. Because we see throughout the Gospels that this offer was so good that when Jesus taught it, he ultimately had difficulty escaping the crowds. So many people were coming and going wherever he was going. In fact, they would hear word of where he was going and they would beat him to that spot just to be around him and have a closer space to hear him from. This is how good this invitation of the kingdom of heaven was. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is giving an invitation of what life here looks like. Heaven can be experienced now in our midst because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about this kind of life. But the question becomes, how can we experience this kind of kingdom? How can we experience a kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven? Simple reality is through faith in Jesus and through the lives that we live here in following Jesus. That is how we usher in God's kingdom. And this is what makes the Sermon on the Mount so powerful. And so when we begin reading about the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't like pick it up halfway through. No, no, he starts off with this kind of understanding right away in the first intro. The first verse is the intro of the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And we see the whole setup that begins the sermon right here. We're going to start in verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, therefore the Sermon on the Mount, and sat down. And his disciples came to him. So he has the crowds. He has his disciples right there. He's on the top of the mountain speaking down kind of to the, the audience there on the mountainside. And here's what he says. He began to teach them, and he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You sit there and read that list and you're like, time out. I thought you said that this was about life in the kingdom of heaven. And you read this list and you see things like poor, mourners, meek, hungry, uh, and you sit back and you're like, uh, if that's what heaven is like, uh, I must have had a misunderstanding of heaven. I thought there's angels and clouds and that whole thing, right? That is oftentimes what people think heaven is supposed to look like. But Jesus, in this section known as the Beatitudes, he is giving us a picture of heaven. And if you are sitting back saying, like, that doesn't sound like heaven to me, it's likely because you've bought into one of the ways of thinking about the Beatitudes that gives it a false understanding. So, so in also, ultimately, we're going to look at a couple of things that the Beatitudes are not to help us understand what the Beatitudes, this section, are. All right, the one thing, the Beatitudes are not a, a set of virtues, right? Virtues are these kind of inward realities of our hearts, that's what a virtue is. And so when we read a, a list like this and see that these people are, are blessed, what we do is we assume that these must be the attitudes of our hearts. I need to begin to get my heart to feel this way so that I can be blessed by God. And what we ultimately try to do is we try to spiritualize these things and make them something positive. But here's the thing. You don't need a seminary degree to try and understand what Jesus was saying. When Jesus is talking about people who are poor and mourning and meek, those are not spiritualized realities. Like, it's just, those are the realities that people were walking in. And so when we try and make these virtues, what we ultimately kind of do is we divide for, with people who are kind of the religious haves and the religious have-nots. And that's not what this list is. This list is not a set of virtues that we need to kind of shape and mold our hearts to, to be, uh, begin to, to feel inwardly. This list is also not a list of commands. These are not commands that we need to follow. In fact, in many ways, kind of between virtues and commands, this is how I often understood the Beatitudes because I would sit back and I would look at this list and think, okay, these are the things I need to do to be blessed by God. These are prescriptions for blessing. And so if I want to be blessed, then I need to do these things. I need to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I need to be a peacemaker. I need to be merciful. And those things are not necessarily bad in and of themselves. But again, the reality is, is that Jesus was not giving the listeners in this, in this audience a, a list of things to do. He was speaking about realities, about life in the kingdom of heaven. And so finally, this list of Beatitudes is, are also not spiritualized, timeless truths. Again, when we see these as virtues or commands, I think what the idea is, is we read these and we think, okay, well, Jesus must have a spiritual meaning for these things. And there must be a way that God desires them to be good. Otherwise, these people would not be blessed. And so we kind of see them as these timeless truths. But the reality is this. Do the meek always inherit the earth? No. 
I mean, oftentimes the people who are inherit these places of power in our earth are not the meek, but they're the, the educated, the charismatic, the people who carry authority with them. They're not the meek. Like, meek is not the thing that you often look for in the CEOs of the world, right? And so these don't necessarily just become these timeless truths. These are kingdom truths for what the kingdom of heaven looks like. This is what God is saying. And so now that we understand these things that the Beatitudes are not, then we can understand what the Beatitudes are. And so if they're not virtues, if they're not commands, if they're not these timeless truths about life here on earth, then what are they? The Beatitudes are an invitation for inclusion. They're an invitation of inclusion. Again, the main subject of Jesus' teaching, it's so important for us to understand this for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, is the kingdom of heaven. This is the main topic of Jesus' teaching. And so when Jesus arrived on the scene, everyone was wondering when God would restore the kingdom to the nation of Israel through the Messiah. And so when Jesus comes and declares that he is the Messiah, everyone assumed that that was what he was going to do. He was going to bring the kingdom and the power and the authority back to the nation of Israel. They were going to be free from Roman rule, and they were no longer going to have people lording over them, but they would be the people who would begin to have authority and power in the land. So Everyone listening to this would have known who this kingdom that they thought would be available to them or who who it was that this kingdom was going to be available to. And it wasn't who was on this list. There were many kind of Jewish sayings in the day that described who would inherit this kingdom for Israel. And it was pretty much made of this list of exclusively. It was people who were Jewish, people who were male, who, people who were religiously up, upright, people who were healthy, and people who were wealthy. And when you understand these kind of five things, it begins to frame other spots throughout the gospel uh, and the, kind of the awe that came in Jesus' teaching. Because so many people came and thought the nation of God, the nation of Israel, would be restored to its kingdom power, and the people who would be entered in were rich, Males who were religiously upright, who were healthy, and they were Jewish. This is who it was. And then Jesus reads this list, and Jesus has his ministry, and guess who his ministry was primarily to? Not that list. Right? Jesus goes, and he goes counter to what everyone thought about the kingdom of heaven at the time. And he blessed the poor, he touched lepers, he healed and forgave non-Jewish people. He even spent time with notoriously sinful women. Jesus' entire ministry ran culture. Why? Because he was giving people a picture of what the real kingdom of heaven looked like. He moved towards the people that were thought to be the ones who would never enter into the kingdom. And he goes throughout all of Galilee telling everyone that God loves them, that God wants to be in communion with them and bless them. And no matter who they are or what they've done, and regardless of their gender or ethnicity, they have access to the kingdom of heaven. So we can see that the Beatitudes, they become words, uh, invitation for inclusion. That the people who were thought to be religiously and socially overlooked now have access to this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in with his presence. 
with his life. And so this is why he comes and he makes this declaration, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Why? Because he has come near. And he goes and he's looking at this crowd on the side of the mountain and he sees the poor, he sees the mourning, he sees the hungry, and he looks and he says, you are not cut off. In fact, you are invited in. And this is how the listeners would have interpreted Jesus' invitation. This is how the listeners would have interpreted the Beatitudes. What I want us to do in kind of the time that we have remaining is look at each of the Beatitudes and kind of understand them for how they would have listened, how they would have heard Jesus' words as he gives this, this list. And we have to begin by talking about what each of the Beatitudes start with. Each of the Beatitudes starts with a simple, or simple phrase, blessed are, blessed are. And to, for us to truly understand and make sense of these statements, we need to understand what the word blessed means. I was just joking earlier, like, I don't know if you say blessed or blessed, uh, but I don't, I, I, whenever I start teaching, I always say blessed, uh, but whenever I talk, normally it's blessed, right? But many people, when we hear this word blessed, what we automatically begin to associate is this word with happy. We think, oh, you're blessed, you're happy, things are good for you. And the reality is, is that only captures a small sliver of the, picture, of the picture of what this word actually means. When you read this word throughout the New Testament, oftentimes what happens is this word is meant to go deeper than our circumstances. It's meant to actually talk about our, our state of being. I think that's why I like using the word blessed, right? Because blessed often, I think, refers to kind of the situations that we are in. If things are going well, then I'm blessed. If things are not going well, then I'm not blessed. When we lived out in Philadelphia, there was this um, woman who grew up in the South. And whenever I'd tell her, like, these crazy things that we would do in the youth group, she'd always look at me and she'd say, like, bless your heart. And I would like, oh, thank you, you know? And it wasn't until later someone was like, she's calling you dumb. You know, like, <laughs> that's what bless your heart means. It doesn't actually mean like bless your heart. She's calling you a dummy. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, you know, right? So, so these things, bless, this word blessed is loaded. But when we look at it in context of the New Testament, this is the reality. It's meant to over, go beyond our circumstances. And it's meant to speak to our state of being. And so when we see this, I think a, a kind of modern equivalent to it could be something along the lines of like very well off or truly well off. And again, not in terms of our, of our circumstances, but in terms of our, our very hearts, our souls, our state of being. Uh, so this is kind of what's going on. And again, we see this throughout not just the New Testament, but we see this actually in ancient writings as well. Makarios is the Greek word for blessed that Jesus used here. And makarios was a word that was used in other uh, ancient writings throughout the world. In fact, there's this book called Sirach, uh, and in this book of Sirach, there is an entire section of Makarios statements, or ancient blessings. And this book of Sirach is a Hebrew intertestamental book. So it was a book that was written between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it described what life in kind of that ancient Jewish world looked like. And look at this kind of how the world viewed people as blessed, as Makarios in the book of Sirach. All right, we're going to look at Sirach 24. Here's what ancient blessings looked like. 
says, I can think of whom I would call blessed. There's that word. And a tenth, uh, a nine of whom I can call blessed, and a tenth my tongue will proclaim. Here's who's blessed. A man who can rejoice in his children, a man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. You can already, time out, see the blessing, right? This is how we would interpret people who are blessed. Someone who can rejoice in his children, he sees his enemies fall. Uh, Someone who lives with a sensible wife, one who does not plow with ox and donkey together. I had to look up the meaning of that one, all right? That's just an idea of, hey, everything you touch prospers. Like your crops continue to produce a harvest. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior automatically right there. Go back to a couple weeks ago when we looked at Jesus washing his disciples' feet and how you would see that this was not a spot of blessing. Happy is the one who finds a friend, the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom, but none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. Fear of the Lord surpasses everything. To whom can we compare the one who has it? So you see these Makarios statements as ones who have it going for them, who are circumstantially going well. But Jesus then comes and reads his Makarios statements, and he says, hey, you who are blessed, who are merciful, who are mourning, who are poor, you are hungry, you are oppressed, you've been cut off by society. He says, you are blessed. You have been invited in to the kingdom of heaven. His statement of who is blessed and who is not completely flips the whole understanding of blessings on its head. And so in stating that the unfavorable people are actually blessed, what Jesus is showing is how wide the kingdom of heaven is compared to the narrowness of Judaism. He, again, is redefining who has access and who doesn't. It's not about following the law. It's not about doing any of these things. Rather, it's about what Jesus is coming and ushering in. He's looking at the poor, the sad, the broken, and the persecuted in the crowd, and he calls them makarios, blessed. He's telling them they are included in the kingdom of heaven. But again, what kind of people are blessed in the kingdom of heaven? First up on the list we see is the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does poor mean? Again, you don't need a degree. Poor means poor. (laughs) Poor means poor. It means the people who are economically and physically impoverished, as well as those who are oppressed. In Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, he just says poor. Matthew says poor in spirit. I really believe that Jesus was not giving the spiritualized meaning to it. He just meant if you are poor, you are blessed. The kingdom is still available to you. But again, we have to ask the question, what does in spirit mean? I think my favorite explanation of it is what Dallas Willard said when he says people who are poor in spirit are spiritual zeros. They are the kind of people that others would assume have no place with God. And yet Jesus is looking at them and he's declaring that the people who feel marginalized from God and who have nothing going for them are blessed and invited into the kingdom. Next up on the list, we see that it's those who mourn. Those who mourn are blessed for they will be comforted. People are mourning We see this in our world all around. And the people who are mourning are those who have gone through loss or are feeling immense grief. 
I don't know what your, what your season of life has been in or been like. We've walked through seasons when it feels like mourning was just everywhere we looked. Felt like everywhere we turned, it was a reason to mourn. Maybe it's death in your family or someone close to you. Maybe it's sickness. Maybe it's loss. I don't know what it is. But we've all experienced mourning. And in those moments, comfort can be hard to find. And what Jesus is saying is that a very negative situation, something that we would mourn over, can be turned into something good. Those who grieve in the kingdom are going to grieve differently than those who are not in the kingdom. This verse won't be on your screens, but 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about this for the people who are mourning. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. In other words, we don't want you guys to be uninformed about people who have died. So that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. In the kingdom, we can find comfort because God is in control of our circumstances and we know how the story is ultimately going to end. We might grieve now, but there will be a day when all things will be changed in heaven. Heaven can change the way we grieve. That is ultimately what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I believe that there's an element of this is what Jesus is saying. is saying, hey, listen, you might be mourning right now, but you will experience comfort when you come and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Friends, heaven changes the way that we mourn. And because we have access to the kingdom, we will be comforted. Who else is blessed in the kingdom? Those who are meek. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, Jesus says. Meek is a weird kind of word today. It's not a word that we use often. It's not a word that is often talked about. And because meekness or gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, again, we naturally want to make it a virtue, an attitude of our heart. And of course, it can be an attitude of our heart. It's not that that can never be true. But there's a dimension of meekness that's not necessarily a virtue. You see, many people understand and know that Jesus would speak in Aramaic. And so the Aramaic word for meek is a word called praus. And this word relates to those who cannot retaliate when harmed. That's the idea behind meek. And this is not, just in case you were wondering, a good thing in the eyes of our world. Like someone who can't retaliate or defend themselves is not necessarily a great thing in our world and culture today, but Jesus is describing them as blessed. And Jesus has promised that the, promises that the prouse, they will inherit the earth. This word used for earth is the same word for land. And a lot of scholars would say, hey, land is actually a better uh, uh, interpretation of this because what they're saying is they can't, these, these meek people, they can't defend themselves and receive the inheritance of land that is due to them. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 listen, those who are meek, you will ultimately inherit the land. Why? Because you will live in peace because God deals with your enemies. God will ultimately defend you in the way that you need to be defended. This is what Jesus is talking about when it comes to meekness. And the blessings continue with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, they will be filled. I love this promise. If we hunger and if we thirst for the things of God, the righteous things of God, for our will and our hearts to be conformed to God's heart and will, then it says that we will be filled. But again, 
our hunger and thirst desirable things for us? The answer is straight up no. And in fact, many of us, my hunches, have never experienced the true hunger and the true thirst that Jesus is likely talking about. Because what Jesus is talking about here is the kind of hunger and thirst where you do not know where your next meal or your next drink is going to come from. That's the kind of hunger that he is talking about. And even though I'm thirsty in these moments of working out or playing sports or whatever, I know that I can walk over to a water fountain or drinking fountain and get as much water as I need. Or I know that in these moments that when I'm hungry, I have the resources to go and get the food that I need to get. My brother, when he was growing us up, he would hear my, my siblings and I say that we were starving to my mom, right? A, a, a common phrasing that teenagers say to their parents all the time, right? And so my brother, who's 10 years younger than I am, he didn't understand this word starving. And so he would yell to my mom. He'd say, Mom, I'm dying hungry, Right? And is his way of trying to, as like a three-year-old, trying to like interpret starving as like people who die because of their hunger. And of course, my mom would say, would roll her eyes and be like, you're not dying hungry. You just ate two hours ago. Right? Those kind of things. Right? And I think that's how we read it. We're like, oh, well, I'm hungering and thirsting for the things of God. And, and Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I want those who are actually hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for their hearts and their wills to be conformed to his will those who are desperate for God's will to be accomplished in them. This is who is blessed. And again, Jesus is, just like the other Beatitudes, Jesus is promising that their hunger and their thirst will disappear and they will be filled. They will be restored to a place where these qualities of God become their qualities. As we continue to move through the list, we see that those who are blessed are those who are merciful. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus here is not describing nice people. You see, in Jesus' day, mercy was not a highly sought-after trait. Oftentimes, people would high, value revenge higher than mercy. Get right with the people who wrong you. But Jesus, he is beginning to reveal a kingdom truth that those who have been shown mercy are called to, to show mercy themselves. And Jesus is saying, if you are merciful, you will be given that kind of mercy. And they're the people who empathize and show compassion to others. They enter into the injustices and the tragedies of the people around them. And again, these merciful people, they're given a promise that they will receive mercy. Instead of revenge, they will, they will receive this this. this reality of the kingdom that many people seek after but few were finding in Jesus's day. And again, next on the list, we, we, go, we move to the next quality of blessed people, and it's those who are pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. My guess is that most of us, we strive to be pure in heart. I've never actually met someone who's like, man, I'm aiming to be impure in my heart today. But I think what happens is as we walk in our world of sin and brokenness, what happens is the world kind of rubs off, off on us and we struggle in this battles of good and evil today. And so as a result, we kind of grow to be impure in our hearts. But your heart does play an important matter in what God is calling blessed. You see, the, the pure in heart, they see God as a person to be loved 
And so they desire that with, they desire with all of their heart, but they always seek to fall, seem to fall short of that. They want to know God. They want to see God. And Jesus says, if you are pure in heart, you will see God. And here's the beauty of it. I don't know if the crowd understood it, but for those who were the pure in heart, they're seeing Jesus and they're seeing God for the first time. The desires of their heart are being fulfilled. As we near the end of the list, Jesus addresses those who are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. These are the people who stand in the midst of fighting and are caught in the middle. They are the people who seek to bring resolution to both sides of the conflict. I think of myself whenever my kids are fighting with each other. I'm like, okay, what happened? Okay, what happened? Those can't both be true. All right, let's come to a, a peaceful conclusion here, right? I use my peer mediation skills I learned in elementary school, right? This is a reality, though. In making peace, we don't ignore the differences of either of the, either of the sides. We come and we begin to try and understand what God has for, uh, for them. Because peace transcends our differences. We must desire peace in all the situations that we're in. But peace will not always look the same, and it will depend upon the situation that we are in. Peacemakers are called children of God because ultimately this is what Jesus did for us. He came and he made peace between God and between man. And so when we actually go and we make peace in the world around us, we begin to imitate and model this life to the world uh, to Jesus' life, to the world around us. And finally on the list, we see those who are persecuted. Verses 10 through 12 talk about this kind of persecution that Jesus ultimately is, is or that Jesus' followers are ultimately experiencing, that the disciples will ultimately experience. But there was a reality of a certain way of life brought persecution. And Jesus says that these last people to be blessed are the ones who are persecuted. We're in awe of stories of people who are willing to die for their faith. I remember reading a book early on when I was in high school when I first started following Jesus of people who had been martyred because of their faith and just being in awe that there was a world that people did not appreciate this kind of life. And then I read the words of Jesus that said, don't be surprised when the world hates you because it hated me first. I think, oh yeah, a life like this will bring about persecution. But Jesus says, if you are persecuted because of your righteousness, of, because of the different ways that you are living. He says, yours is the kingdom of heaven, and your reward will be great in heaven. Friends, this is the list. This is the list that Jesus described is blessed. These are the people who are blessed, and not just blessed. These are the people who have access to the kingdom of God. But what does this mean for us today? Because you might sit back and you might find yourself on this list. You might not find yourself on this list. Either way, you're asking, what does this mean for me today? Am I blessed because I'm mourning? Am I blessed because I am meek? Am I blessed because I am, I am hungering and thirsting for these things? Friends, what, what, this what this means for us, despite how we're feeling, is that we are blessed. And the reason that we are blessed is because of Jesus. This is why we are blessed. If you find yourself on this list, you are blessed because of Jesus. You have hope because the kingdom of heaven is available to you and to me. Our character traits 
These character traits are not highly sought after in our world today. And really, I believe that the condition is not important. The condition of this list is not the important thing. What is important is that these people are not cut off from God. And let's just be honest. When we find ourselves on this list, it is likely that we wonder the question, what is it that we have done to make us go through this? Why am I experiencing this? In some ways, we feel like we are cut off from God. Friends, if you find yourself on this list, you can take hold of the reality of the kingdom truth and the blessing that you are not cut off from God. Why? Because of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. He has made a way for us to know God's grace and forgiveness. And as a result of that, we are invited into the kingdom of heaven. That, that is our home. And so we are blessed in, in our circumstances because of Jesus. Despite our circumstances, we have access to the kingdom. And Jesus has come to reverse the situations that we are going through. You might sit back and say, what if I'm not on this list? What if I'm not hungry? What if I'm wealthy? What if I'm happy? Awesome. Uh, there's a great giving QR code in the back that we would love for you to <laughs> scan. Um, and we invite you. No, but seriously, like, if you are not on this list, great. Congratulations. That is awesome. But there is a warning that, that Jesus issues to those who are not on the list that's found in Luke 6. Here's what the warning says. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. This warning doesn't come because God does not accept rich, well-fed, or happy people. That's not what the warning is at all. So if you walk out hearing that, you've heard wrong. But this warning is given to the rich and the well-fed and the happy because oftentimes when we are in those situations, we forget our need for God. These circumstances can often numb us to our need for God and cause us to overlook the needs of others. But this is not how it should be in the kingdom. So friends, if you find yourself on the list, I want to tell you that you are blessed because of Jesus. If you don't find yourself on this list, you are still blessed. But do not allow your circumstances to numb you in what you are walking through or begin to overlook the people around you. Because ultimately, in the Beatitudes, what Jesus is inviting all of us, whether we're on the list or not on the list, to do is to become living Beatitudes. We are meant to be the living Beatitudes to the people around us. This be word Beatitude is just this, this Latin word that comes from blessing. So we become living blessings to the world around us. Whether we're on the list or not on the list, we become living beatitudes. We go, and everywhere we go, we begin to live a different way of being. We begin to live out our blessing. And everywhere we go, the kingdom of heaven is ushered in there with us. Am I walking into my workplace? So is the kingdom of heaven. Am I walking into the grocery store? So is the kingdom of heaven. Am I walking into this park on Tuesday? So is the kingdom of heaven. Wherever we go, we become living beatitudes because Jesus did not cut us off from the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, we do not cut others off 
from the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us into an interactive and vibrant relationship with himself in the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, we have the ability to go out and be a living beatitude where we invite others into a vibrant and interactive relationship with him as well. So if you are in this kind of relationship with Jesus, then you are a living beatitude. You become a walking and talking blessing to the world around us. So again, I I don't know what situation you are in. I don't know how you would describe this past season of life. Whether you're on the list or you're off the list, here's the reality. You are not cut off from the kingdom of God. The Sermon on the Mount is what life in the kingdom of heaven looks like. And life is available. This kind of life is available for the people who everyone would overlook. But Jesus is inviting them in. And so my final words of encouragement to you are simply this. In the present, there is blessing. In the present, there is blessing. Despite what our world says, if you are on this list, you are blessed. Because of the presence of God in your life and because your circumstances do not cut you off from the kingdom of heaven available to you. Friends, we're not blessed in spite of our pain, which is how often we think about it, but rather we are blessed in our pain. And there is something that God has for us in the midst of our pain. So in the present, friends, you are blessed. But in the future, there is hope. In the future, there is hope. Heaven is our future. There will be a day, no matter what you are going through right now, when everything is made right. There won't be sickness, There won't be sadness. There won't be pain. All sad things will come untrue. I love what C.S. Lewis says about heaven in his book, The Great Divorce. He says, some mortals, some other humans, when they look at your circumstances and when they hear this truth, what's going to happen is they will, some will say of this temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it right now. There's nothing that is coming that will give you hope in this moment. But here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, heaven, once attained, will work backward and turn even that agony into a glory. There's hope in the future, friends. And this world and what we walk in today is not all that there is. There is hope that is called heaven and that kingdom you have been invited into. This is why this is the greatest message, the greatest sermon of all time because it's an invitation for those who are far from God to be brought in through the life of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven has come near, and this is what the Beatitudes offers to us. I don't know where you're at in your relationship with Jesus, but this is only true if we are following Jesus, if we put our faith in Jesus. Scripture makes it clear if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we believe in our hearts, then we will be saved. And so it simply is an acknowledgement of who Jesus is, a coming and asking for forgiveness and laying our lives before him. And so wherever we're at, we just want to create space for us to come and praise God for bringing this kind of blessing into our lives. 
or maybe for some of you, it's to simply surrender and ask God to do a work within you so that you can ultimately experience this reality in your everyday life. Wherever we're at, let's respond in prayer and worship. Father, we come and we thank you for this time. We thank you for the reality of this kingdom, Lord, that is made available to us, Lord, that has transformed our realities right here. God, you have come and you have made yourself known. You have made the kingdom of heaven known to us. We might be feeling like we are cut off from you. We might feel like we are far from you, but Jesus, you have given us access. You have showed us that we can draw near to you because of Jesus, what you've done for us through your life, through your death on the cross, and through the empty tomb. And so, Father, we come, and Lord, we ask and we pray, God, that you would give us eyes to see how we are blessed in even in the midst of being on this list. And if we're not on the list, Lord, help us to be those living beatitudes. If we are on the list, help us to be a living beatitude. But, Father, help all of us to take hold of the blessing that you've made available to us and to take hold of the hope that you've given to us as well. Jesus, we are so grateful for the simple truth that we find in the Beatitudes. And we are eager to learn about what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount has to teach us so that we can experience here on earth what it is like in heaven. Lord, we give you all of who we are. Holy Spirit, we ask and pray that you would come and do what only you can do. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Would you stand with us and worship?